And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three. The Kellen and Alex Show. Zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. The Kellen and Alex Show. How you doing, Kellen? I'm doing great. How you Jacob, doing? welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate you coming on. You're in our next line of just very impressive guests, Dr. Plato <laughs> being the first uh, last week. So you're studying now in Oxford, but That's you're right. living here in Steubenville yes, uh, for the time so, being. So my wife and I spend half the year in Oxford and half the year here. Um, my son was supposed to be born there and then COVID hit. And so we ended up uh, being here. We actually drove... Uh, into our driveway at the very minute that we got the notification of the travel ban. And the week later, we uh, were informed that our flights were canceled. And so we've been here a little bit longer than half the year, but we much prefer it to to Hori, England. So it's great. (laughs) Where where are you currently living right now? Uh, We have a home here in Steubenville. Oh, in Steubenville. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, they're pretty similar, Steubenville and Oxford. So. <laughs> yeah. And have you been working on the the new polity stuff that's been going on with uh, with Dr. Jones? And I know some other professors are involved in it. I have. I'm very grateful to be a part of it. I think it's just an absolute uh, necessary form uh, that we... Today, nobody really thinks about God in, in public places. We have this strange bifurcation between public life and private beliefs. And for some reason people think that they can box God into those private beliefs. And that once you start talking about economics or politics, well, some of the moral <clears throat> principles of Christianity could generally be applied, but really, no, he, he doesn't have much say or much, much care about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if the truth of the matter is that Christ is supposed to be king of your heart, uh, king of your family, then, and also king of your neighborhood and your friendships, then He's certainly also the king of your city as well. Right. And, and so this is a website and uh, a group that... So who are the original like founders, starters of, of this like website group, New Polity? Dr. Andrew Jones, whom I think many of you have had, uh, and Mark Barnes and myself were, were the three kind of founders into this. We've wrangled a few others uh, into, the, into the group as well. Alex Plato, Logan Gage being some of them. Um, We have a a wider net that's outside of Steubenville as well. Professors William Cavanaugh, John Milbank, D.C. Schindler, uh, Chad Pecknold, great men, a few others. Uh, So we're we're a growing yet small group. And and I think extremely, uh, it's just, I guess the way that I should put it more is is that it's, it's profoundly changed the way that I think and more importantly, the way that I live. And so as far as think tanks go, I can't say that about too many of them. And so I'm really grateful. I know I'm kind of part of it and, and such, but the, but the influence of the other thinkers on me has been um, something that I've been extremely blessed by. So how did you two meet? You came to the uh, proletariat meeting, our, our small secretive group, which I guess not so secretive now. Yeah, but, you're letting it out, <laughs> man. I'm letting, letting the cat out of the bag. But uh, no, you came in, uh, we, we were talking about uh, Dr. Jones' book, actually, Before Church and State, mm-hmm. um, his kind of major work that, that was his doctoral thesis, right? It was. Like, you might hear this from many different people, but it, the book that was 
based upon a dissertation or something like that, as you might hear from a, like a Hollywood movie, like based on a true story. It's kind of the same thing for most people's books that, that emerged from their dissertations is that they inevitably changed quite a bit mm-hmm. from the original. But that's what he spent his graduate work studying was medieval France and, and the political state. So how'd you get plugged in with Steubenville originally? Because you were doing Oxford. So you went to, was it Baylor for your undergrad? That's right. I was reading up a little bit Baylor about University. So wow. you, you got a uh, scholarship to Oxford mm-hmm. to study there. Mm-hmm. And then was that where you did your master's? Was it in was. Oxford? Okay. It was. Mm-hmm. And that was in Islamic studies or it was. religions? I first went to Oxford just as a normal study abroad. You know, there's different opportunities to do that there as there are with many other universities. Um, and I went when I, while I was still actually a Catholic catechumen my junior year of undergraduate. And I um, arrived, I think it was a Thursday evening. Yes, it was. And I, um, the next morning I was kind of walking around the town, seeing these unbelievably gorgeous buildings. And then I passed a sign that said the Oxford Oratory. I said, Hey, I know about that. The Oratory, that's John Henry Newman preached there. Tolkien attended mass there. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins was a curate there for some time. So I got to go check that place out tomorrow. And so I went, it was Saturday morning to mass and, uh, afterwards, I was looking around for a priest because I was still a catechumen. I had to carry on. I was going to be there a number of months. And so I, some, some guy in the back uh, with a collar on speaking to an old, old man. And so I kind of went up close to them, but like not too far so that they wouldn't think that I was too pushy. You know how that (laughs) awkward situation is (laughs) like, I want to push in, but I won't. Anyways. So I, I went that distance and then they saw me and they beckoned me over anyways. And I explained my situation. Hi, I'm, I'm a catechumen, I've just moved here for a number of months. I'd love to continue on with catechesis. And uh, the man with the collar on kind of looked a little bit surprised. He goes, oh, actually, I'm not the one that you want to talk to. And the old man he was speaking with turned to me and says, no, he's not the priest. He's the bishop. He wasn't oh. wearing any purple. <laughs> he wasn't wearing any purple, no pectoral cross. I just couldn't tell. And so I was, uh, and I never met a bishop before. And so I thought, wow. oh, my goodness. What uh, successor of the apostles? Can I touch your feet? I don't know. Is that what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to touch feet? I really didn't know what to do. And so it was very funny. And uh, and he was a little bit uh, surprised about being outed, or at least it seemed to me at the time. And he pointed over to the old man. He says, yes, but this is the man of Oxford. This is Walter Hooper. And if you know who Walter Hooper is, he was the secretary of C.S. Lewis. And he, he became the executor of his literary estate after his, after Lewis's own death. Um, And so in large part, the reason why we still read C.S. Lewis today is because Walter worked extremely hard to keep him in print. And so it was, you know, 36 hours into this trip, I thought, man, this is a pretty cool place. Yeah. So I went back. (laughs) Put that on your resume, how many people you've met. (laughs) So how freshly a catechumen were you? At that time. You know what? So I had become an Orthodox catechumen in August of that year. And quickly afterwards, I think just a number of weeks even, I said, I, you know, I should really do Catholic catechesis at the same time. It'll make the, you know, it, it, hopefully I was hoping that would clarify things. Why it would, because oh, you I kept doing hearing. Both. I was Orthodox doing, and Catholic. Yeah. Catechesis. So like Wednesdays would be Catholic, Fridays would be Orthodox. And because I kept hearing things from the Orthodox that, you know, the Catholics say, the Catholics say, the Catholics say, I said, well, I should really go hear it out of the horse's own mouth, you know? And then, 
And it was, it was brilliant. It was, was indeed clarifying. And so when I moved to Oxford, it was January. So it was just a few months in. And then I was received just after Easter and, and Walter ended up becoming my godfather at that time. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So that was, so before you got to Oxford, you were already taking catechesis and stuff here in the U.S. or? In the U.S., yeah, at Baylor University. And it was, I mean, that was just an extraordinary uh, Catholic community down there. We, the last two years that I was there, there were 40 people, 40 of us that were received into the church. Um, And it was just kind of a conversion factory where people were, Protestants, people who truly loved Jesus Christ and wanted more of him in their life was began studying history just you know St John Henry's old line of you cease to be protestant at the very moment you begin studying history proved very true at Baylor University so i i uh, left in december i uh, left waco in in december carried on in oxford in in january and i remember when i actually did meet the priest who was wearing wearing a collar not a bishop this time but but actually a priest at the oratory and he looked at me kind of gravely when he, when I asked to continue on with catechesis and he goes, ah, now is this catechesis to become a Catholic? And I go, you know, my heart like dropped down to the pit of my stomach and I go, uh, yes, it is. <laughs> and I was like, you know, all of a sudden it became extremely real in that moment. Mm. I think probably just the sanctity of father Joseph. Um, he was just a wonderful man. Um, but, but, but has that aura of holiness. I've known him for several years now, and it hasn't gone away. If anything, it's increased. Um, and uh, and so I said yes, and but immediately I was kind of nervous. And so I uh, I ended up contacting Callistos Ware, who's a, a bishop of the Orthodox Church. He lives in Oxford. He's written books such as The Orthodox Church and The Orthodox Way. The latter is, is a gorgeous book. I think everybody should read it. Um, and, uh, and we ended up going out for Sweet Sherry, which was hilarious. Um, <laughs> after a Vespers liturgy, he celebrated. And, uh, and I ended up asking him like a series of questions, particularly about this one meeting that he had with Pope Benedict, or excuse me, that, that, the, that the Orthodox um, uh, bishops had with Pope Benedict. And I said, okay, so you guys talked reconciliation. Does that seem likely? You know, what else did you discuss? He goes, oh, no, 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 no. It was not only for reconciliation. My eyes are kind of like, oh, no, this is this is getting bad. You know, it's like he's not as ecumenical as I thought he was because uh, he, he's actually a great proponent of, of ecumenism, for better or for worse. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he goes, no, we Orthodox just could not organize ourselves. And so we asked the Bishop of Rome to head our table. <laughs> and so I, I was just like, yeah, I did have my, the same reaction that you just did. I thought, man, if you need a Pope, then I sure do. And so that really, that really sealed the deal. And I was a very happy oh, Catholic catechumen only from then on out. Oh, that's awesome. Wow, man, so many, ba- Dr. Dom too is a uh, Baylor convert, right? Baylor convert. Yeah. Was he, were you guys in like similar classes or was he, uh, are, are you older than him or well, he older? He's Brandon, older, right? I hope you're listening to this. He's older. Uh, <laughs> He's older by like by like five years, ten years. I have no idea. I'm sorry. It, well, at least at least seventy, I think, really. Right, but right. Uh, no, he was a PhD student while I was an okay. undergraduate. Well, you were an undergraduate, and I was actually in a class that he taught a, I guess, a lecture for. It was a seminar style, and so he he led one of those seminars, 
And I actually was, that was at the point when I was still a Catholic and Orthodox catechumen at the same time. And, uh, and I, you know, I was, I was very confused and didn't really know what I was thinking at that, that time. Um, and I, and I like pleasing people. I'm a people pleaser. It's, it's one of my, one of my vices. And, and I kind of said something like negative about the Orthodox thinking that he would like that if I, if I said that. And, and he, you know what, he came to their defense in such a gracious and virtuous way. It, um, his demonstration of virtue in that moment was, uh, it still has an effect on me and it was, and it did not end up playing a, a small role in, in my, uh, my open heart to, to the Catholic church. Um, so I owe him a good bit actually. Yeah. And then I moved here to annoy him a bit more. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 So, so how did you get with Steubenville then again? Uh, maybe I missed that part of it. I was invited here to give a talk a, a few years ago or a couple of years ago, some time ago. And, uh, and that was arranged by Andrew Jones and, and Mark Barnes through the St. Paul's center. And that was, um, I thought it would be fun. It would be great. You know, I, I knew Mark, um, pretty well at that point And I thought it would be fun to see this city that he just talks about nonstop. And I absolutely fell in love with it. The potential of this town to become a city that is grounded on Jesus Christ, I thought was, if not unique, very, very rare. Um, I thought that most cities that we um, live in today have, as our, have our, our, they are already dead set on pushing God out. Um, doesn't matter whether you are a Democrat or Republican, you want your common space without God in it. Um, it kind of might sound harsh at first, um, and you guys can, might push back on me a little bit. I'd love to talk about it, but um, but I thought this town has been defeated by all of the various political agendas, whether that's socialism or capitalism. Uh, this place doesn't really have any fire in its belly for either which side of, of the political agenda. I thought, well, well, that's that's a perfect place for Christ to begin to rebuild, um, and and Mark does a great job sweet talking that that narrative into my ears <laughs> wow. and many people's ears, and uh, and I bought it hook, line, and sinker, and married Alice and bought a house, so it was great. There you go. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, I think Franciscan brings in like a quarter of the revenue of Steubenville. It's like the, just the city. Sounds right. And it's just like I feel like without the university this town would just crumble because, you know, obviously we're built on, we're a passionately Catholic university, academically excellent. And there's not many of those in the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was just thinking to myself, you know, all the students that come here from around the United States, around the world, the, you know, exchange students, like that really has an impact. Like you see it on people's faces, like especially in downtown or different places, you kind of just sense that you know, these Catholic students coming in, they're very respectful and nice. And that has like an impact on people. Um, Alex and I, we both come from California and kind of like nicer areas. So, you know, coming here to this place, it was just like, it was a lot big, a culture change, mm-hmm. especially, you know, since we're long from a long ways away, but it was just really cool to kind of see how, cause I just graduated, but the three years that I was here to really see how students really can have an impact on people's lives and how they can really change people, especially in a town that's kind of not as built up and not as just kind of been run down, you know, kind of that blue collar town next to a big river, you know? Yeah. Right. Like so many are. I think that 
the way that you really change a town though is by setting down roots. You know, nothing can be done slow quickly. Everything must be done and with this same amount of time that is needed to be um that is demanded for a, a real relationship of love to develop. And at that point, then things begin to change. Yeah. Yeah. Is Baylor yeah. University a public institution or is that Catholic? It's Baptist, believe it or it's not. It's Baptist. Yeah. Okay. Because I was thinking, well, there seems like there's a lot of good religious stuff coming out of here. Yeah. And how so, do they feel about turning out Catholics <clears throat> at Baylor? You know what? I We all kind of wondered about that. There was a, I guess I'm letting the secret out of the bag here, but there was uh, the Dean of the Honors College, who's uh, now the president of the University of Dallas, great Catholic man, Dean Hibbs. And he was the most political guy in the world. Oh my goodness. He <laughs> just had a way of uh, letting everybody have their way and ensuring that, that Catholicism was <laughs> the dominant religious narrative that everybody heard. That's awesome. It was awesome. Yeah. And Tim Vivarek, Father Tim Vivarek, again, unbelievable. He's so su- He was so suave, so kind, so unbelievably sharp. A brilliant guy, and he he was a priest at a parish nearby uh, years ago now, um, and he got the president's ear and actually convinced the president of Baylor University at that time to develop a great books program that introduced historical theology into the curriculum, and for not only for the honors kids but also the seminary, the Baptist seminary that was on campus. So all of a sudden people are being inculcated into the great tradition, which is the Catholic church. Wow. So it was, uh, it was, it was good clandestine maneuvering of Catholicism. So, so you got your undergrad in what? Historical philosophy and classics. Okay. And then you got your master's too, right? Did you get your master's? In Islamic studies and history. Wow. And now you're getting your doctorate in... Theology and economics. Wow. That's such a crazy <laughs> variety. I mean, that's that's so cool. So it's like, the way that I try and justify it without just seeming eclectic and uh, hodgepodgey mm-hmm. is that I wanted... Originally, what I was thinking was trying to... Uh, harden up or, or sure up the, the rims of either side of this great crevasse that was my mother's faith and my father's faith. My mom being uh, a happy evangelical while I was growing up. She's now a happy Catholic. My dad being a liberal Muslim um, uh, with varying degrees of adherence uh, throughout my life. And so I wanted to understand the deep roots of my mother's faith, my father's faith, before I could build a bridge across. And at that point, I, at one point I was thinking, well, perhaps that could be ecumenism. And now I've just realized that that bridge has to be the bridge of conversion. So are your mm-hmm. parents, you said your mother's Catholic mm-hmm. and your, is your father still Muslim? My, or? my father died uh, several oh, years okay. ago. Um, well, that's awkward. can't believe you asked that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Maybe we should have, <laughs> should have prepped a little bit more before, but that's no, all. Right. I just, no, I'm teasing you. Uh, but he, he did, uh, request baptism and was baptized before wow. he died. That's, be- that's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So wow. he's probably seeing a, a happier heaven than, than many people who lived a life. He, I mean, he just skirted right in at the end. That's Got all those sins clean. Lucky guy. Those are the most re- yeah. like amazing redemptive, redemptive stories that you see. It's just mm. people at the very end who maybe have just lived not the best life or whatever circumstance, but at the very end they reconcile with God and you know, it's just amazing. You know, God honors that. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. 
So go sorry. for it, please. How was your uh, initial studies at Oxford? So uh, what was the program that you were in? So originally when I went as an undergraduate, I studied classics there. Okay. And then uh, later on, when I went back for my master's, I was studying Islamic studies and history, as I mentioned, with particular focuses in uh, medieval Muslim philosophy. And then on the other hand, the Quran itself. And that's really where I... Um, where my sweet spot was. And I enjoyed that text so much because I think, I don't know if you, have you read the Quran before or tried to Just pick parts. it up? Just parts. Parts, yeah. Yeah. So you've probably realized quite quickly that it's like the Psalms, but ex- way more, like 10x more confusing. Just, <laughs> this is like, oh, there's this random thing happening over here. And by the way, you should be good. And Allah hates the sinners. And then over here, you know that story about Noah that we're not going to tell you, but you know it, right? Yeah, we're going to mention it. So th- it's just kind of sporadic. Talk no. about eclectic. It's more eclectic than like my 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 uh, CV. And uh, the... I just, I, but I do believe it's a genius text in many ways. Um, the fact that it had such an enchanting effect on an, an entire continent plus um, may suggest that maybe that's just an ad populum um, uh, fallacy. But but I but I think that there are some certain arguments that I could make, particularly to the text, that uh, suggests a level of brilliance too. So, what do you think about the origins then, with with your? Saying there must be some brilliance with it, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I've heard. Okay, well, I mean, there's the Muslim interpretation that Gabriel, it was Gabriel, right? Mm-hmm. Just gave it to Muhammad, or did he inscribe it? Recited it. Recited you know, it. Yeah, okay. and that's part of the, uh, the 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 very etymological core of the Quran. That recitation. Yeah. Oh, right. You mentioned mm-hmm. it, it means like recitation, mm-hmm. like Quran, the, the word does. Well, the, the word is actually a little bit uh, confusing, but yes, I mean, that's the easiest way of doing it. You could you could even uh, translate it as lectionary. Really? Okay. Mm-hmm. So it had a specific liturgical purpose. Yeah, I think that's probably the best argument for its origins is that this was a book that is nearly homiletic, actually, a book that is liturgical in in its very structure. It's a book that takes authoritative stories that are known and then brings out certain details of them to then instruct people how to live. So just as a homily that you might hear on Sunday or any day of the week um, doesn't retell the readings that were just spoken to the people, um, but it takes out certain parts of it, tells little details of, of it, it again, kind of, yeah. and interprets it and puts it forward. That's really what the Quran does uh, over and over and over again, where it expects you to have a background knowledge of these texts. Hmm. And what's particularly interesting, at least to me, is that if you go around and you look at Syriac uh, homilies from our own tradition, St. Ephraim or Jacob of Sarug, so in and out of our own tradition, I guess I should put there, um, what you find is that they were clearly liturgical. I think that's something that we often um, can mistake today is the thought that a homily is not a liturgical act, but it is a liturgical act. It's part of the sacred liturgy that helps you enter further into the sacred scriptures that when Christ appears, you might better recognize him. Hmm. Right? And in the ancient world, or or I guess should say that the late antique world of the Syriac fathers, they actually gave their homilies in a poetic meter, so which was which was similar to the liturgical meter here and there. I guess I should qualify a bit, but 
it had that same enchantment that the sung liturgy does still today, mm. um, even into their liturgies. And there were more parts of it that were um, told over again and referenced and, and expanded upon in kind of a circular motion of where you mention Mary and then you'll move on to a different point and then you'll mention her again and go on to a different point and then you'll circle back again and mention Mary a third time and then you'll go on to another point. Um, and that same poetic meter, it's called Saja, it's is actually what the Quran itself is written in. Wow. So, uh, and, and quite a number of people have, have written about this, but um, what I have been trying to uh, offer to the uh, to the academic community, and it's been fairly well received at this point, is that I believe that the Quran, that whoever wrote the Quran, whether that was Muhammad or somebody else, knew these these stories very well. He didn't mistake them. He knew them quite well, as so well that he knew what was important in these stories to the Christian theological narrative and which ones weren't. And so what I, I've tried to propose is that the author of the Quran changed these subtle and important details in order to apply a new theological backbone to these authoritative texts, to these authoritative stories. Whoa. So as to woo the people of the Arabian Peninsula away from the Christian narrative and towards a new vision of God. That's crazy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Wait, so there would have been, so whether it was Muhammad or someone else, they mm -hmm. knew what Christian theology was mm -hmm. and what it was offering mm -hmm. to the people of the Arabian Peninsula at the time. Mm -hmm. But they took specific parts of that message and then using this specific type of poetic uh, you know, style that they were using, the homiletic type, they took those parts of Christian theology they, they wanted to change and then tweaked it, made it different, put it in its own meter, and then to, to combat Christianity spreading. That's right. And they, uh, absolutely, I'll take, um, many people will, might have heard stories that the Christians of that area were Nestorians, or maybe some Arians were running around, uh, some adoptionists were, that there was a whole smattering of uh, a Christological heresies. And I think that's probably true. Um, but as we know now, uh, a lot of those Christological heresies were um, a little bit of misunderstandings. I'm thinking primarily of John Paul II's um, conversations in 1994 and 2001 with the head of the, Nest the patriarch of the Nestorian church, where they pretty much say, um, we, we kind of had a misunderstanding this whole time. So, and, and I, I think some of those misunderstandings were very, very real. And there were real heresies going on, but I'd like to suggest that there was quite a bit of overlap, real overlap where people were truly thinking about Christianity the way that it was supposed to be thought of, and living Christianity the way that it was supposed to be lived as well. Um, and that was what was undermined. So I'll give you two quick examples of that. Uh, the first is that, is the, let's take the Annunciation story, actually. So this is the great uh, narrative of the divine approach, the, is the way I like to think about it, where God comes to us offering himself humbly uh, to to enter our lives and and he does this particularly and specifically uh, with the Blessed Virgin Mary and of course we all know this what's the climax of the story you guys can tell me you know, what's her line uh, let it be done unto me according to thy will fiat mihi secundum verbum tuum exactly so in the Quranic text 
it's the same thing where the angel is coming and, and saying, you will deliver the son. And she asks, how will that happen? Similar to her question, though not quite the same. In, in the sacred scriptures, um, it's, it's just a fine, really slight uh, linguistic difference, but pretty much the same message. And uh, explains to you that he will come, he will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's not quite the same wording again in, in the Quran, but very close. Uh, and you will bear a son. And that's, of course, when Mary says, let it be done unto me according to thy word. Well, what happens, that instead that fiat, that let it be done unto me, the subjunctive welcoming of God into her life, well, that is switched, turned around and put in God's own mouth as an imperative, be, and it is, in the Quran. All of a sudden, this nuptial welcoming, this, this marriage between man and God God in his church at that very moment, Mary is as is, the church, is undermined. All of a sudden, she's just another slave. I mean, who is God to listen to a woman that he created? Why does he have to obey her? It's a completely different vision of Who's God. Who's the woman in the Quran? It's Who's still this? Mary. And she's still It's a still virgin. Mary? So mm-hmm. it's the same story? She it's is the actually Same story. She's actually the only woman ever named in the Quran. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow! So they this they is tweak okay, the whole yeah. story. This is blowing my oh, mind. Yeah. The, the tweak the story part of this is just because does that mean okay? Let's. So I don't know who you think like wrote wrote the Quran or whatever, but if it was Muhammad, he would have been familiar with pretty pretty seriously familiar with the Christian revelation. Oh yeah. Do you think it was Muhammad who wrote it, or do you think it was other writers, and then Muhammad kind of took it and ran with it, or? Um. You know what? I, I think the jury's out on that. I've read a lot of the academic literature on both sides of the debate, and um, I guess I don't think it's that important to not have made up my mind. Okay. <laughs> historically, but, but, but maybe we, I should. Maybe it is important. I should. Do we know historically who's written the Quran? No, that's the question. Yeah. So, okay. so scholars like my supervisor, Nikolai Sinai at Oxford, suggest that it is the same guy. You can see the gradual changing of the of the poetic scheme uh, shifting over time, which demonstrates a, a level of integrity of, of authorship. That might be the case. I think that it is, um, I think that there's, there's a good bit of variation in it too, um, in, in other ways. And um, I suppose Walid Saleh in at Toronto is, is, is an advocate of that as well as, uh, some other guys at Notre Dame, but it's uh, it's just it's just a tough tough one, and I don't really think it matters too much for us. We definitely know that Muhammad existed; like he's a historical character. There's uh, kind of eleven or twelve, maybe there's more at this point. Uh, different early t- uh, texts that cite his existence that are non-Islamic, uh, that are Christian, Syriac, or other that that mentions his uh, his dominance in war, actually. Um, and some texts say that he's just a leader. Other texts actually name him. Um, but we definitely know that he really did exist. And we know that he was a fairly good fighter, but we don't know how good of a poet he was so from those the, texts. Wow. So the this whole narrative of tweaking the story, I mean, obviously, whoever wrote it, like, they must have known that, okay, you have this, we have this Christian theology here, and we're kind of mirroring that in the Quran. But why... They must have known that if you if you tweak it in a certain way, 
that it's going to either lead people astray or lead people towards it. Right. Because like people who, if you look at it and you analyze it, why would somebody, why would somebody do that? Like that, just trying to wrap that, wrap my yeah, head why, around Why that. tweak the Christian one? Why not just come up with your own, I suppose. Yeah. Well, I think that the part of the <clears throat> appeal to taking something that people already love is that they already love it. And if you can just redirect it a little, little, then you've got the whole crowd that was doing something else now doing your own thing. Would you say most people that are Islamic know that? No. No. That, no. It, it literally just kind of the start, the started, began to break out into popular Islamic discourse about two years ago. Wow, so this is new. So we're really years. kind of on the edge of our seat seeing how the Muslim world reacts to this. This has been in academic literature for a long time, but yeah. that stuff takes a long time to trickle down. So I've read a little bit of like John Damascene and then like the Protestant, or not the Protestant, during the Counter-Reformation era when they were talking about um, Islam and stuff. And I've heard them viewing Islam as like the greatest Christian heresy. Yeah. So this would definitely play into that a lot if the Quran was taking Christian theology. Um, would you, would, would you hold that same interpretation? I do. I definitely do. Yeah. No, this is, uh, I didn't until I came to this understanding of the Quran and then I thought, Oh wait, that pairs really nicely with what the tradition has always said. And actually, you know what the, it's, so we stopped, we always call heresies by the name of its founder. You think of Arian, uh, being the founder of Arianism and Nestorius being the founder of Nestorianism and Martin Luther being the founder of Lutheranism, John Calvin of Calvinism. So we always say this is, of course, you're following a man here, not actually God, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's what we try and do by naming them in a particular way. Well, the tradition had always called Islam Mohammedanism. You know, right. this was and always had done. Uh, and you go back and you read G.K. Chesterton or Belloc or C.S. Lewis, it's Mohammedanism. It's not Islam or, 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 uh, or Muslims. It's Mohammedans, right? Maybe Turks. Maybe Turks. They get the <laughs> ethnic thing in there. Yeah. It's not they, very politically correct today to, be, to call them Mohammedans. Dude, they'd be so canceled. I've never even heard of, I've never heard of Mohammedans. <laughs> yeah, but that's yeah. all the old school guys always talk about it in terms of Mohammedans. Yeah. And so, but what's really quite interesting, I went back. So... There's a Catholic college, there's a number of Catholic colleges at Oxford, and one of them is Blackfriars, where the Dominicans um, run their studium. And they actually have a complete set of the notes of the Second Vatican Council. So we often read the documents of the Second Vatican Council, right? They're pretty thick, pretty long. But of course, those weren't the first iterations of what came out, and they're not even the first considerations of what they should say. And that's all that's in the notes. You think about like sitting down to write a paper, you take a long list of notes from various books at first, ideas that you have uh, before you even put a rough, rough draft together. And that's what these are. I mean, so it's, you think about how thick the Second Vatican Council is, this thing is just off the charts, huge, and it's not been translated yet. Um, and so... I just kind of wanted to go back and read what they have to say because I found that what was in Lumen Gentium and Nostra Aetatae to be kind of strange, a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. And um, what it, what it says in those texts is that we respect uh, Muslims, and there it is actually it's not Mohammedan, it's Muslimos, you know. So, we're, but that's right around the time when the term started to change around 1960s or so. Uh, uh, qui 
uh, adorant deum unicum nobiscum is what it is in Latin, that we uh, we respect uh, Muslims uh, who worship, who adore one God, unicum. It's, so that was kind of a weird translation. I didn't know how to translate that. Um, one God with us. And so I thought, okay, unicum, that actually could be translated as monotheistic, you know, giving it a bit more of a, a heavyweight term there. And I th- just wanted to see if that's what the council fathers were thinking. So I, I go to Blackfriars, which is on a great, beautiful street in Oxford called St. Giles. And I, and I go down into their basement where they have this huge wall of, of the notes of the Second Vatican Council. I start reading through, reading through, reading through. And it seems quite clear to me that they actually do mean that we're worshiping the same God, which I thought was kind of strange all of a sudden. And, um, and I kept reading, kept reading. And then I, it finally clicked for me. They only ever exclusively referred to Muslims as Mohammedans in the notes. They, they only made that change of Muslimos, Muslims, for the actual text of the council. Why did they do that? I'm sure political correctness took okay. over at that moment and, and respect. Like they're saying, we respect Muslims who adore God. And it's like, it's not really respectful not to call them the name they want to be called or something like that. <laughs> you know? um, and so I, uh, I thought that actually was quite clarifying in a certain respect because all of a sudden the things that Muslims know about who God is that are correct didn't come from just pure natural theology, but actually came from our own revelation. Just corrupted revelation. Just corrupted revelation, absolutely. Wow. Mm-hmm. So when when in the documents of Vatican II, they say same God mm-hmm. as we worship, mm-hmm. they mean that in the sense of like anyone who's in heresy worships the same God, but in a like a corrupted way based on corrupted revelation, but it's based on the true, you know, um, the, the true fullness is in the Catholic Church. So it's on that scale. So we don't just like Muslims have their own distinction apart from everything else as this completely separate from Christian religion. Right. I'll try and describe it this way, that there is an internal essence of God, which is uh, three persons and one essence, of course, we all, we all know for the cat, from the catechism. Um, but there's some confusion, you could say, about that personhood in the essence and how that's manifested to the world. But there's not necessarily, but, but there's, so there's an internal reality that revela- that we truly need revelation to know. And then there's an external reality of that same God in his, in his true monotheistic uh, uh, being that, whoops, Mike goes. Uh, Mike's going a little, uh, continue. Uh, that sh- there, there is like, a, there's, an internal and external, uh, almost face of God. And Muslims are right to say that this God, the God who's actually there, who's truly there. Yeah. He's monotheistic. Yeah. So, and, and so, and that's not necessarily, uh, uh, a well believed or, 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 uh, it's not a thing that people believe in the pagan world. You look back, um, at the classics and at antiquity, you got a lot of gods running around. That monotheistic vision of God is is not always there, rarely there even. And for the fact that the Muslims got it bespeaks uh, the truth of the revelation that they then corrupted. But at the same time, it also bespeaks 
the fact that they're the external being that they are worshiping, well, they, they at least got that right. They are worshiping somebody who really is monotheistic. Mm-hmm. And there's no other God out there other than the one God. Right. You know, and they repeat that five times a day, right? That's part of the mm-hmm. five times a day prayers. Five times yeah. a day. And then you have to yeah. visit um, Mecca. No God but Allah. And- or seven times a day for <clears throat> Muhammad in the we, Hadith. We, yeah. Oh, really? And think, what does that sound like? What, what seven pr- praying seven times a day, oh, the, five times a day? Oh yeah, like the liturgy, of the hours, the totally. office. Yeah, where do you think he got that from? Because we got that from the Jewish prayer originally, and then it got brought over as a. And yeah, then he got it from somewhere. It. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is a wow. That puts it in a. I mean, for most people, when they think about Islam, could not think you know, or would never think, oh, this is actually. A, Christian heresy. Yeah. That is a completely different paradigm. Yeah, it for is. Viewing it, you know? Most I, people do not understand, would not understand that. I think most that. people would balk at it because, or do balk at that idea because it seems disrespectful. I'll just Fair leave enough. it there. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, that, not that I'm trying to suggest disrespect or anything, yeah. but um, C.S. Lewis always says that the simple religions are always the incorrect ones. Though you can always identify the more simple re- religions as heresies because they <coughs> distill down something so dynamic and gorgeous and complex, yeah. and they make it into something that is more readily intelligible. And it seems really political. Like even from its initial inception, it seems like because it had a very political purpose afterwards, uh, right? Didn't Muhammad go and conquer most of the Arabian Peninsula? Oh, more I than mean, that, he made it all the way to Spain. I mean, or he, oh, right. he, he yeah, didn't yeah. make it to yeah. Spain, but within a hundred years, within fifty years, they were mm-hmm. over there. I mean, it was unbelievable growth. But I would want to make this distinction that I think that there's violence is not always wrong, or maybe that's not the right term to to use. Um, like force. F- forces, yeah. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas says that violence is always wrong because it's it's an attack on something's nature. Um, so he likes to use the word coercion instead. Some, okay. Once something is out of, out of whack with its own nature, with its own essence, you got to put it back into whack. Can you say that? Yeah. <laughs> through, like, through force, though. Yeah. Uh, through force, absolutely. Yeah. So think about that. That starts do you, even down at the temporal level, the, the temporal powers of the church, with a father spanking his kid. You know, that's, you can't, of course, that's some level of force. It's a level of coercion. It's, you know, spare the rod, hate the child, says Proverbs, right? So that is in Christianity, and it's in Christianity for a good reason, is that if you allow somebody to go off and create chaos and, and and revel in disorder, then you're not loving them. It's actually an act of charity to get them back on track. And oftentimes actions speak louder than wor- words. Um, you often have to escalate a situation so that they feel a little bit of hell now that so that they don't go there later. You know, and so that goes all the way from the from the dad spanking his kid to the just war that uh, a Christian nation might declare on on a non-Christian nation, uh, or even on a on an apostatizing Christian nation, mm. as as happened uh, often in history. So you're saying so, like the political isn't necessarily you know it's not like Catholicism denies that element that we need a like nations coming under the church, right? Right. Of which New Polity I think is doing great work to try and <laughs> push back secularism. Right. You know when when God says when Jesus here on earth says that. 
we need to render under Caesar what is Caesar's and to God's what is God's. Yep. Well, then who's in, and of course he's saying like, well, whose image is on, is on the coin? Well, Caesar's image is, well, whose image is on, on man? Well, God's image is. So whosever image is on you, you got to render it. Well, actually whose image is on Caesar? You got to, he has to render. And, and of course the very next chapter in Matthew, Jesus tells us that he has to render his whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Caesar himself does as well as all of us. So what happens when Caesar then is now a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? You know, he, he himself must render everything to the King of Kings. The King must render to the true King, be an obedient disciple of him. So, that is very much within our tradition, and we're denying something really important about it if if it's not. We're almost saying that we think that our politicians shouldn't convert or that they shouldn't really act like Christians when they're mm-hmm. in power. Um, and, you know, God forbid we say that. We want them to, to live the true Christian life through and through and through. Um, and Islam is very cohesive in that narrative um, where they think that religion and politics merge together. But here's the real thing that they mess up, or one of them, I suppose, when it comes to how religion and politics merges together, is that they don't believe that politics, that politicians, maybe that's a better way of putting it, that politicians should answer to the religious authority, but rather that the politicians are the religious authority. So there's this, there's this, there's this switch, this flip on his head that's going on, where all of a sudden religion is a tool of the state instead of the governing authorities being obedient to God Himself and what He commands for His people. Um, and this is actually just average paganism all over again. This is what the Hellenized um, world always did: is that there was every every king was a priest. You know, every emperor was a son of God. That's why the term is so important in the Gospels. And the Christian tradition just turns that on, on its head. And this and you find this um, mistake arising in Eusebius of Caesarea, where he is praising um, Constantine for being a so great God's sovereignty on earth. And the rest of the tradition all around him is saying, uh, dude, that ain't right. You know, it's like, <laughs> we must always be obedient to Jesus Christ first. Otherwise, we just say that he was one son of God amongst many other sons of gods. Mm. You know, whoever's running the state, well, he's he's the one that mediates between heaven and earth at that time. So right. it's a it's a complete inversion. It's it's a return to paganism is really what Islam does. That's so interesting that they, they switch, they... Like almost like worship politicians than God. Like they switch that, that hierarchy. That's really interesting because I think that to some extent in American culture, a lot of Americans do like worship politicians because they think that they're, I think especially if they don't believe in God, mm-hmm. they think that politicians are the ones that are going to save us and maybe they don't know. Yeah. But it's, it's interesting that uh, Islam just completely switches that, that they worship the people that are like currently in power. I mean, even though, even though Jesus Christ is the true one in power, but like the people on earth that they can see and that they can interact with are like the people that hold the positions of power that they worship. It's interesting. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, well, it's like the philosophy behind it is kind of interesting. Yeah. The and thought behind it. I mean, the well, highest goal too, right. Is like the conquering of all nations under Islam, a general Islamic, 
global Caliphate, dominance, right? Yeah. Caliphate, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that was ISIS's explicit, you know, they're the one who's going to the caliphate and it's kind of fizzled out now, but <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so that's the political goal. Let's say the terminus of Islam, mm-hmm. you know, while earth still exists and God's allowing it to do its thing. Right. 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 It's really the same, but I think your point is really, really good that we do that same thing with U.S. politicians, but I think perhaps the difference is that Muslims are explicit about it and we don't give much thought behind it. We just do worship and adore politicians thoughtlessly. Mm. You know, we uh, juxtapose uh, church and state and therefore we say we worship Jesus over here when we don't even realize that we're actually worshiping Trump or Biden or Obama or whatever over here or Kanye. But you know, in America, you know, in our, the amendments in the constitution, we have, you know, the freedom of religion. So we have the right to worship who we want. Right. But who, it's like, we have these politicians who are in power, these people that are the hierarchy that literally president Trump runs our country. Like that's his position. But it's like we fail to recognize, it's like we mistake our rights for the actual, like that's all we focus on is our rights that we have, but we don't really understand like the God-given power behind them, mm. um, which is I think another reason why people look at Joe Biden this, and he calls himself a Catholic when he's not Catholic because he's you know just a namesake or whatever, but which is I think a reason why people will vote for somebody like Joe Biden just mm-hmm. because- he calls himself Catholic. You know what I mean? And like Trump is not Catholic, but he's Christian. I believe he's, was he Protestant? I'm not sure. But people don't really understand. If like, if people knew the history of Christianity and like they the history of Islam or whatever, I feel like our, our decisions as citizens would be so much more prudent to who we actually elect, like who we oh, would yeah. actually understand. Like, if we knew true history of Christianity, why would somebody ever elect Joe Biden? Well, who you know would I mean? ever elect Donald Trump? It'd yeah. be very controversial. That's true. There is yeah. no way that, so we just had that crazy uh, video of Father Altman come out uh, a week or two ago or something like that. He was talking we, about the Democrats, right? He or, said, Catholic cannot be a Democrat. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll take it one further. A Catholic cannot be a Republican. Mm-hmm. Hit me with that one. No, it's it's a valid point. I mean, a, a Off lot of the desert. Wait, Let's go. <laughs> well, our lot. dream is Montana, though. Montana, a cabin. My be- I'm gonna. I had a He's beard by grow the way his beard before. Out. So Alex it was has pretty this, long. Beard. He has this grand plan that I think we might have yeah. constructed in Austria. I mean, we studied abroad in Austria together. Yeah. But he would. Uh, it was funny when it was snowing because we had this um, really ni- probably the nicest room up on the third floor mm-hmm. in, uh, in Austria. In, in Austria. And sometimes I would come in there I'd just see Alex like stroking his beard like this while reading like in his left hand Dostoevsky or something. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> it's, just, it's a total philosopher. So he wants to go to Montana, have a cabin out there and just have a book, you know, a house full of books, philosophy books and just you got to be at least die. Gonna, he's going to live out there and he's going to die out there. Yeah, that's, that's, really that's the dream. But I mean, okay, so if we're not going to be Republicans, yeah. Jacob, yeah. is it Montana? Do we just, well, so, do we, do we yeah. get out of the political process altogether? That's a place like, to go to we, get out of it. Do we not vote for Trump? Do we not vote for Republicans well, in general? Or I think we just have a misunderstanding of what politics is. Like when, when we think of politics, most people think of the happenings in D.C., 
But that's not right at all. I mean, the way that we really need to start over and just realize that the that the institutions that have been created were created by people. Like these are not just givens that every generation through in every culture are always going to inherit and have. Hmm. We created them. People are still in charge. We have this weird understanding that the systems are in charge. Systems aren't in charge. We are in charge. And so we, when we are thinking about what type of person is going to create a liturgical order for a society, we have to be really sure about the, the dispositions of soul in those people, that they're good, that they are virtue and not vice, um, that are going to lead people into heaven uh, instead of the other way. Um, this is, you know, book uh, six of, of, of Solomon's wisdom says, says this, he's speaking to the kings of this earth. He says, uh, oh, monarchs, he's not, who's he speaking to? To the, to the kings of this earth who are all, almost always derided in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Um, and so in, he's telling them, these are the ways that you must live so that your people will grow in holiness, so that you might reign in justice and not transgress. You know, so so this is this is really important because who's in charge and the dispositions that they have are going to ha- create systems that either breed virtue or breed vice. And I think we've we all can quite clearly see. I don't think it's controversial anymore that we have a very vicious society. Um, and we can't un- we can't uh, consider that the systems didn't have anything to do with that. I think they quite clearly yeah. did. Um, when you walk outside and you have a disagreement with your neighbor, you think about ha- sending the city commissioner to go and talk with them instead of actually like having a friendship with them and just saying. So, so and even having a friendship with them before there would be any issue. So it's just, I mean, it's just a completely different world. It's an impersonal world that we've created. Um, with mediators, state mediators for everything, or now big tech mediators for everything, um, and so when we're when we're considering what politics actually is, it it's really the art of people living together, orienting one another towards virtue. Um, so that again begins with. The, the father raising the child up and leading that child into a virtuous state so that he might be free to love his neighbors as himself. Um, if there's anything that goes wrong, well, the father will spank that child so that they don't do that wrong again. If that child grows up undisciplined, he'll be doing wrong and the rest of the society will have to quote-unquote spank that child, send him to jail, um, hoping to lead them back to virtue. But the system needs to be predicated upon this freedom where you're moving from that, that same movement from the Old Testament to the New Testament, that movement from the law being written on the tablets to the law written on your heart, that has to be the same movement of politics. Politics has to be the art of, of Christian formation. Wow. <laughs> How do we how do we move from that? Because like our whole, I mean, let's talk about our, so Montana. Our you're really wondering, Montana. Do we do yeah. this how do we move in Montana? Well, yeah, I, we started. Well, I mean, Steubenville's kind of like it, like you were saying earlier. It's one of those places that's just been beaten down. There's not really like if our system's set up to produce more wealth to make you know 
people live health, healthy, happy lives in their pursuit of happiness mm-hmm. and material success. Like, how do you start to crack into that, that mindset, that worldview and be like, Hey, no, there's something transcendent. You actually need to be orienting everything towards. Yeah. It's a great question. I think that the first things first is really practical. Have a good family, raise your children in the faith, order your household, know your neighbors, invite them over, grow in love with them, and create a community that actually is personal again. Make America personal again. Maybe that should be our slogan. I like that. Make Steubenville personal again. Make Steubenville personal again. <laughs> yeah. I, I think we're we're kind of like that little starting point here in Steubenville. I Just think a so. Bit, yeah. No, I mean, that's big reason why we moved here. That potential that I'm talking about that we, that Alice and I saw um, when, when moving here, it was, it was that it was the potential for, for a real society based upon love on, on interpersonal love. Like re- so love. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly that. Starting small for sure. But. Starting small. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just thinking about the whole time, your point of like, what is the name? There's a specific name for like a, a state where God is the ruler it's oligarchy is theocracy. 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 Okay. Theocracy. I guess that's the ideal, I guess that's the ideal, uh, form of government that we could have, but no country or no place is ever going to be perfect. And I think that that's the unfortunate thing. I think that things can be changed, but like realistically, if we look at the United States and say, okay, what's it going to take for the United States to become a nation ruled ultimately by God, you know, not just like a president, but by God, like, how can you switch? How can you do that complete switch to that system? It seems like it's almost impossible. Well, I wouldn't recommend starting to try, not only because I think that when it's a, it's a lie that we often believe that real life happens in DC, real life does not happen <clears throat> in DC. It's very rare to find someone living a, a real life in DC. Um, it's always kind of this technocratic, manipulative type of, of life that everybody is kind of system oriented instead of people oriented. But I, what you just said was interesting on a couple of levels. The first is that I think when a lot of people think of a theocracy, they really think of somebody ruling in the name of God um, because there still has to be some leader. And that could be the the caliph himself or it could be... Um, you know, Henry VIII or something like that, where where the, the power of God is invoked so as to raise up a society. Whereas perhaps a theocracy rightly thought of is, no, 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 God's the only one with true sovereignty. That's it. Game over. You know, that's that's, a, that's the be all end of it. And, and that's more of what we're trying to go to. So it's not quite anarchy, <laughs> but, yeah. but uh, <laughs> like, especially not modern anarchy with buildings burning and Minneapolis mm-hmm. gone, but, uh, Portland as well. but, <laughs> oh, yeah. and people acting truly in conformity with, with the church at the, with the church's dictates for, for indeed Christ did give Peter the keys, you know? And so that's where the sovereignty does come in, into play where the church doesn't have it. But they they do guide in in God's name, um, but there was there, there was something else that you said that was really good and I forgot it now, but it was good and I'll just just affirm that. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> well, a, uh, you know, a theocracy there has to okay, right? You can't just have 
Like there has to be structure. You know, I'm not saying that God isn't structure. Oh, mm. you, this is the other thing yeah. to that very point. You said there's always going to be sin, bad things going yeah. on. Mm. And I think that's right. Absolutely. You have to have structure to take care of those bad things going on. But what happens when everything's fine? Mm. Like, why do we have so many laws? Like, I was just at my accountant's office today trying to uh, work out some some various details. We kept having a reference, our lawyer, all this. You know, it's just crazy. There is an entire complex world of law out there, positive law that has no basis at all in the natural law of God. That's a way of taking God out of the equation. You, you ignore his natural law and create your own. And I think that's really yeah. what's happening. And so we need to have systems in place for when bad things happen, but overly re- regulating the prevention of them. Well, oh my goodness. Like that's really when, when freedom is jeopardizing gone. Mm-hmm. We need in, in freedom, like that founding principle of America, that's not the one to let go of. That's the one that we need to hold on to for freedom. You have been freed. St. Paul says, what would you say is the ideal structure in government to have a theocracy. So like, would you say that a a monarchy would be good? A king and a queen through God's rule? I mean, or a president or a group of people? I mean, what would, what would an ideal theocracy look like, but with structures in place like we've been talking about? Uh, Let me get to a slightly roundabout, not too roundabout. Um, You look around at society today and it's kind of hard to tell who the actual rulers are. You might say Trump, but like, you know, not much is being done. Like your, your life is really not affected by Donald Trump all that much. Right. I mean, like how much has really changed in the way that you live and behave and act because he's in charge. So, I mean, very little, I think mm-hmm. is probably the answer. Right. Yeah. Um, so C.S. Lewis kind of bemoaned this fact that we don't have rulers anymore. And he hated the fact that we don't even use that term ruler anymore. And that we started to use this word leader in its place. So leaders, that's just a guy who's kind of like, out in front showing showing us how it's done. But a ruler, that's the one who actually has some power over me. Who doesn't just influence us, but actually says, you're on the right path, keep going. You're on the wrong path. We need to intervene. Um, and that that was that's really more of what we want to get back to is having real rulers in society. And I think that what... Uh, Dr. Jones shows in Before Church and State is really a phenomenal model. Maybe not one that we can recreate to a T, but at least it shows us general principles to apply again. Um, and and one of those is that let let the free be free. So um, to take a, a nice example of this, he tells a story of uh, a group of peasants that would go and collect their firewood every year in the forest. And one year, the Lord of that land stopped them and said, hey, you're taking my firewood. And when they go to the court, the court says, so what's the charge here? And the peasants say, well, we just took our regular firewood like we always did. And the Lord says, well, no, no. I mean, yes, it's true that in past years, they've taken firewood from my forest. But this year, they took two carts. Usually, it's only one. And so they did some research and over the last 45 years, the legislators or the judges, excuse me, not no legislators, really. The judges determined that some years they did take one cart, but other years they did take two. And so there was a right enforced for on behalf of 
the peasants to collect that wood until the Lord stopped balking at them. And as soon as he was happy enough, the, the law disappeared. The peace was restored. People were not legislated about what you could and could not do. It's not like next year they couldn't take three. The Lord might be happy with them taking three, and that would come into the, would maintain the peace in a certain way. They could take one next year, would maintain the peace in a certain way. And that peace can only come from love, can come only from order. It can, it, and it, there's no laws, no intricate web of legislation that suffocates us in this country, mm-hmm. what we can and can't do. And those yeah. laws generally would favor the Lord in that situation if they were like pre-made before the situation happened. Like, I totally agree. Yeah. So that whole system of laws, if you had a whole system, mm-hmm. um, would seem to favor those who already have capital and property and whatever else. Um, okay. To that charge though, what would you say, you know, it that would seem nice maybe in a medieval setting based on love and stuff, but like mm-hmm. we have a very, you know, uh, trading of goods in the marketplace and the stock market and yeah. banking system and financial stuff. And like all these things yeah. really need regulate regulations and rules That's and laws. True. Otherwise very, it can be easily manipulated. It's a very I mean, complex a, society that we have today. So how do you, what's the, I guess the question is what's the best form of government that we could have to create a peaceful society? Yeah. I think that most of the things that would need protecting today should not exist in a Christian society. Okay. So I mean, that's a good answer. That makes sense. Yeah, though. No, it does make sense. So, yeah. so I, th- the first thing that comes to mind are modern banks. I think modern banks are fraudulent, usurious, uh, corrupt to it, to the core, actually. IRS, yeah, totally. penny, penny pickers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or even fractional reserve banking. I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's, it's really this idea that when I drop $1 off at the bank, they're then allowed to say that they have 10 and to lend those nine other dollars out at a usurious rate at an, with interest at interest rate, mm-hmm. you know? So what all of you guys are probably have your, your loans for school, I guess not this, this semester, eh? Um, but you have your loans for school and there's there, there's an interest rate that you're going to have to pay back more on an unproductive loan. That's true. Yeah. That is condemned by the church. You know, the first time that that was condemned by the church, like formally, the first ecumenical council of Nicaea. No way. The wow. same council where they declared that God was a Trinity. Oh, wow. And they thought it was so important <laughs> to declare that that was evil, wrong, and <clears throat> should be condemned. Hear that, feds? Nicaea 1 told me. Oh, I'm not paying geez. back my student loans. No, that's, true. that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> that is, that's such a good... You cannot have first, permission. Heard your first on the Kellen Kellen Alex show. Show. That is such a good way of thinking is we have all that's these... Amazing. Yeah, like... Oh, there's so many unchristian things about our world today that are like literally built in in the processes yeah. of how our government works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our world would be so much simpler, I guess, if we were in a, living in a theocracy or in a Christian society. I mean, like people say the United States, I mean, a Christian nation, it's not a Catholic nation because it's primaries, primarily from its history, Protestant, but like we have, like I said earlier, we have the right to go worship. Like there's mosques in cities, there's Catholic churches, there's Protestant churches, there's all the different things. But how much of that really, like, how could a theocracy, it's hard to say because- well, It's the same thing as Rome, and we don't think of Rome yeah. as a Christian empire, like before Constantine, even kind of afterwards, but definitely not before, right? Mm-hmm. And they have 
the ability for religious freedom. I mean, there were so many different religious cults. It was unbelievable. And uh, Hilaire Belloc makes this case in one of his books. He says, um, think about it like this. If there was a Roman centurion that walked into a party and he saw a Stoic, an Epicurean, and a Christian all going off about how much they love their religion, and even the Christian saying, I just love Jesus Christ. He's so wonderful. He's so great. He's changed my life. Which one of the three would the Roman centurion persecute? And, and Belloc's answer is none of them. Because that Christian doesn't even deserve the name Christian. He's he's just going off about how much he loves him. He might get up and pray five times a day, but if he's still obeying all the dictates of the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. then he's not a threat to the Roman Empire. The reason why Christianity was persecuted in the early church was because they had their it's their own hierarchy, their own habits and mores, their own institutions of power that rivaled the Roman state. Mm. And today in America, we don't have that. So you're saying... We need to be threats to the United States government. I'm liking it. I'm liking it. Rebels. Well, I mean, like the original, when there originally like some states that would not allow Catholics in their their territory, like Pennsylvania, and there were there were some places yeah, there where were. they specifically yeah. like outlawed. I'm not like necessarily Catholics. saying that we should be be a threat. I do. I, I have a felt need to clarify this. I don't know who's listening. I heard first. I heard so first. But no. But this is. But this you is, mean present like we're but, challenging the structure in, in the yeah. sense of like. Yeah. But be obedient as yeah. far as you can. I mean, is this not also the early church's meth- message right. um, that we shouldn't flee the church? I mean, Tertullian's phenomenal on this. Origin's mm-hmm. phenomenal on this. Um, that we should not flee this this state. We should be ready to be martyred. But as much as we can participate with it, well, yeah, sure. As much as Caesar does something just, right, and good, yeah, encourage him for it. Have you know, Continue to pay taxes. Continue your relationship with them as much as you can. Right. But you can't just wholesale approve of what it is and just assent to it. Like you have to be, I mean, if the Christians did that, the Roman empire would never have changed to be Christian. Yeah. Polycarp, you know, considered to be a a disciple of St. John, the beloved. He, you know, as he's about to be burned at the stake as, as one of the first Christian martyrs says that we all must be obedient to our bishops, to Caesar and Caesar to the bishop. You know, and I, you know, I'll, yeah, I just think that we should stop playing that game of Caesar says and just be obedient first and foremost to our bishop, to the canon law, and to the law of the gospel of loving God and loving neighbor. That would change everything, wouldn't it? Be so fun. Yeah, it would change everything. Yeah. Yeah. It would be so fun, just like this edition of the Kellen and Alex show. Wow. (laughs) Special special edition. Wow! Yeah, special edition. This has been a wonderful podcast, Jacob. Thank you so much for uh, for coming yeah. on. It really was fun to spend it. this time with you guys. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah we hope you'll come you. back at some point in time. Mm-hmm. So It'd be great. Yeah, that's gonna wrap it up for us. Uh, thank you guys for listening, Kel and Alex. Show we'll be back actually tomorrow night tomorrow with night, a podcast, six to eight p.m. Six to eight p.m. So thank you guys for listening. Peace out.